You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no-gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and overall adulting. With your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by Camex LLC. Holy guacamole, did the last two weeks fly by as fast for you as it did for me? Time sure flies when you're just straight up not having a good time in this country anymore. All right, all right. I can't even with that drama. So we're going to skip it and get right to the good stuff, yeah? Taxation without representation. Oh, no, wait. Oh, uh, that's why we have America to begin with, huh? Yeah, fuck. All right, well, whatever. These aristocratic ancient white dudes get to complain all about religion and taxes enough to get to create a whole new flipping country. We're just supposed to lie back and let them get it over with? No, sir, not happening. But let's not let that get us down today, all right? It is summertime, it is cancer season, and my birthday is next week. So welcome back, my badass babes. It's Kristen Atherton here, ready to teach you how to take back some of your power, or at least a little bit about taxes. Let's channel some Shania Twain, and let's go, girls. La strada per Roma è lontana. The road to Rome is long. There's a shit ton for me to say about taxes. And as with everything else this season, I have to really pick and choose what I can afford to talk about time-wise. What this means is I may be brushing over something that is of particular interest to you. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. It just means it's not high level enough or it's about companies rather than the individual. Now, if I skim the surface of something that you want more information on, please email the show and let me know. I started this podcast with my own ideas, but as we get toward the end of the season, I want to make sure it's not just me talking to myself about what I think you might want to hear about. I want to know what you want more of. So if you have ideas or questions, our email is lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. So again, that's LTE, short for let them eat, avo short for avocado, and toast. Hopefully that's easy to remember, but just in case you forget, this email is included in every single episode in the closing credits. So if you need to, you can just skip to the end just to get the email. That being said, strap in, ladies. It's going to be another whirlwind of information. Now, as you girls may have learned about me by now, I love history. I used to tell my parents I wanted to major in history in college, but they told me that there aren't any good jobs in history, at least none that paid well. Okay, look, my parents valued money and my ability to handle my own personal finances, so that's how I wound up in the financial situation I'm in today. But I do still love history, so we write it done, or rather, we're going to start at the beginning. Didn't realize there was a history of taxes and taxation? Oh, girl, this will be a treat for you. What are taxes even for? Whose bright-ass idea were they in the first place? I've got you, my pretties. Taxes are tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, taxes and society. Oh yes, my vibrato is on point, but not on key. Oh yeah, and I'm not supposed to be singing anymore. Sorry. Now imagine a company that offers you a tangible product, meaning you can see it, you could touch it. These tangible products, they're called goods, like groceries. Now imagine a company that offers you a service, meaning it does something for you. So let's say DoorDash brings you groceries. A government may not initially strike you, as a goods and service provider, but in many ways, it really is. The government provides services pertaining to law, order, and defense from enemies, both foreign and domestic, so that would include things like the alphabet boys, the police, the military, and even services for veterans. The government maintains infrastructures like roads and highways. It provides education services and assistance, including transportation for students and teachers' salaries and benefits. There's social benefits, including health care, unemployment, and retirement assistance. And on top of that, the government is involved with maintaining the stability of the economy, including backing up the currency itself. Plus, 
the government contributes to research and development of new technology and innovations that are supposed to benefit the citizens of the country. Now, the government is not like a company in that we don't pay to play based on which services and goods we actually use. So in that sense, the government's more like a country club. Everyone pays a membership fee for a blanket use, but depending on what services you use more of, you might wind up paying more or less than your neighbor. So taxes are basically our varying member fees and service costs. And then there's the history. The first record of taxes occurred around 5,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. At that time, the pharaoh took 20% of all grain harvests. Now, grain isn't money like we know it today, obviously, but it was about as good as the barter system got. It could be stored, redistributed, and used in place of other items of value. The ancient Greeks were then responsible for perpetuating the concept of taxes across their Grecian empire, as with many other modern advancements. Apparently, even the Rosetta Stone, our key to unlocking the meaning of hieroglyphics, was mostly just a tax document explaining the tax laws that were decreed in 196 BCE. That kind of takes the fun out of this mysterious stone-turned-cipher key. The first sales taxes of record began under Julius Caesar at a flat rate of 1% across the entire Roman Empire. That rate increased to 4% under Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus also implemented an individual wealth tax, which replaced a regional tax base, but that became really difficult to implement, so it ended up giving way to an individual income tax instead. Now, property taxes go back even farther into history in ancient China, ancient Egypt, and ancient Persia. They were based on expected production value of the land, so typically they were paid by farmers. Inheritance taxes began as a tax levied in the Roman Empire. It would be at 5% of an estate, which was used to pay pensions to veterans. Now, that's not how inheritance taxes are done today. The way we do them today originated in the Middle Ages in the feudal system. So a feudal lord would get an inheritance tax whenever a fiefdom was passed down to an heir at the fief's death. Tariffs, which are taxes on traded goods, goes all the way back to 3000 BCE, specifically tariffs on the trade of metal and wood between the city of Kanesh in Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and Assyria, which is in modern-day Iraq. This practice was also continued by the Roman Empire. No surprise there. Funny enough, even though the colonies had a series of taxes levied upon them in the years leading up to the Revolution, they actually still had lower taxes than if they'd been back in England. They did lack a representative body in Parliament, hence the no-taxation-without-representation rallying cry. But all of that is a history lesson for another day. Now, I touched on a few types of taxes that we saw throughout history. There's actually quite a few more. All of these taxes fall into one of three main categories, though. What you own, what you earn, and what you buy. Now, if you think back to episodes one and two, what you own is analogous to your net worth in that it is similarly static or unchanging on a day-to-day -day basis. And in some cases, it actually is your net worth. Now, these taxes include property taxes, what they call tangible personal property taxes, estate and inheritance taxes, and wealth taxes. Property taxes which are also referred to as real property taxes, are based on unmovable property like buildings and land. The state and local governments see the most benefit from property taxes, something like 70% of local taxes and 30% of the combined state and local taxes come from property taxes. Now, these generally go to pay towards schools, roads, police, emergency medical services, and fire departments basically local services and goods. Property taxes are based on the assessed property value, which can be affected by the sales price, by the assessed land value, 
and the assessed upgrade value of the land, which would include the value of a house or a building on top of that land. And in some cases, they assess only a partial amount of that upgrade value. Now, every state and local government assesses some level of property taxes, but if you live somewhere that they're high, you may have heard about people contesting their property taxes. For example, growing up in the Houston area, this happened a lot, so much so that there were companies out there that made their whole job off of helping you contest your property taxes. Now, they're not actually contesting the property tax rate. That's one thing you should know. They're contesting the assessed value of the land and the home or building on top of it. This rate is set, but the value that it's multiplied by could be reduced if you can contest your case well enough, hence people making an entire living out of it. Now, some states and local municipalities use higher property taxes to counter a lower income tax rate. Others will have higher income taxes, but lower property taxes. The five states with the lowest property taxes and this is based both on tax rate and the median property value, not just the tax rates. Those states are Hawaii, Alabama, Colorado, Louisiana, and Washington, D.C. The five states with the highest property taxes, again, based on both the rate and the median property value, are New Jersey, Illinois, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Vermont. Note that local governments, which include cities, counties, townships, etc., those can also add to the property tax rates that are levied by the states. There are other items that you own that are not fixed in place, like the real property. These are called tangible personal property, or TPP. This could include things that you can touch and move, like business equipment, machinery, inventory, furniture, even automobiles. TPP accounts for a pretty small amount of state and local tax income, and they're generally pretty complex, which creates a high cost of compliance. Generally speaking, these apply mostly to businesses, and they are non-neutral, which means they favor some industries over others, which actually distorts investment decisions in the economy. They can place a burden on assets that are used by businesses to grow and become more productive. So it effectively hinders economic growth and discourages new investments overall. Interestingly enough, 43 states had TPP taxes in 2019. Now, estate and inheritance taxes are two branches on the same tree. Estate taxes are assessed on the full value of someone's estate when they pass away. So if you die... This is your entire net worth, properties, investment portfolio, life insurance payouts, everything in your bank account. I'm pretty sure even your debts will get paid from this estate, but I'm not entirely sure. Don't quote me on that. But all of that is taxed by the government when you die. Then there's inheritance taxes. When you die, your estate is distributed amongst whomever you have designated as your inheritors or beneficiaries, if you're familiar with that term. Each person who gets a piece of your estate, which has already been taxed, will have to pay an inheritance tax on it. Now, if you want to try to avoid estate and inheritance taxes, you would do so by distributing your estate before you die, but you're limited by the starting point for gift taxes. Gift taxes are an earnings tax, basically stating that you can be gifted roughly ten dollars to $15,000 each year before you owe any taxes. And I don't know the exact number on that one. Now, the last type of tax on what you own is the wealth tax. Wealth taxes are imposed annually on your net worth. So remember back in the day, I told you guys I have a net worth of a million dollars. Cool for me. Awesome. I get to say I'm a millionaire. But if there was a wealth tax in place, I could be taxed each year on that amount with that wealth tax, even if I spent 50K to go to school and didn't earn a paycheck. So basically how I've been living the last two years. Usually though, wealth taxes start at a certain threshold. So let's say they started at a million dollars. For me, every dollar that I own that's above that threshold is what would be used to assess a wealth tax. 
My resources that I found to do this research don't particularly love wealth taxes. And here's why. Now, first of all, there's only about six countries in Europe that assess a wealth tax as of 2019. And two of them didn't make any revenue whatsoever on that wealth tax. Now, typically, wealth taxes are very difficult to administer, and they don't usually raise a whole lot of revenue. It's not a lot of bang for your buck, if you will. Most countries have done away with them by now, and not just for those reasons, but because they can actually have harmful effects on the economy, which includes discouraging entrepreneurship and innovation. You may remember Democratic presidential candidates discussing wealth taxes. That would be Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, if that rings a bell. Now, other candidates wanted new tax brackets for people making a shit ton of money each year, but Bernie and Warren both wanted true wealth taxes. Liz's wealth tax, or net worth tax, which is an easier way to think about it, it started on a net worth of $50 million. So if you had $50 million to a billion dollars, you would have 2% assessed on all of the amount of money that you had between $50 million to $1 billion. If you had over a billion dollars, you would have an additional 6% assessed on all the net worth that you had above $1 billion. Now, Bernie's wealth tax had a lower threshold at $32 million, and it graduated a little bit more, so it topped out with an 8% tax assessed on wealth over $10 billion. And these were annual taxes, not one-time assessments. Now, based on my calculations for retirement, very crude, not including time value of money or anything, we're just looking at today's dollars, you can still live a really comfortable upper-middle-class life for the next 70 years on $10 million in today's dollars. So that's roughly $140,000 annual income for 70 years. So if you had $32 million, even if you gave it to a baby, that baby would be able to afford a lifestyle of $320,000 annually until that child was 100 years old. And that's in today's dollars, remember. Now, I'm all for building wealth, but something about a baby being able to afford $320,000 annual lifetime lifestyle for the next 100 years just seems a little crazy high to me. I don't know. So I'm not exactly against wealth taxes at that threshold. In our country, the wealth gap is rapidly growing. The middle class is disappearing. So I don't see that asking the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts of today's society to redistribute their wealth, I don't see that as being overly outrageous. Now, even if you want to give people more of a chance at Liz's threshold, which starts higher, remember, it's not terrible. I mean, that would be, again, living on 500K annually from zero to 100. According to Warren's website, this sort of tax would only affect about 75,000 households in the U.S., which is roughly the top 0.05%. And it would bring in $375 billion in revenue per year. So estimating almost $4 trillion over a 10-year span. In any case, I don't have all the numbers that were used to come up with the tax revenues in Warren's calcs. If they're correct, I don't see the harm in it. The thing is, the only other countries that have done this recently in Europe are seen as overly progressive. This country is really far from progressive. So look, make up your own mind. I don't see that strong a reason against it. The next category is what you earn. What you earn can include things like your income taxes, payroll taxes, and capital gains taxes. This category would also include corporate income taxes, but I'm skipping over that one for now since you're not a C-corp all by your lonesome. Perhaps the most widely known of all taxes are the individual income taxes. This is the one you pay straight out of your paycheck. Wages, salaries, tips, investment, any other form of income that an individual or a household earns. In the U.S., there are seven income groups, known as tax brackets, that have varying rates which a person could be taxed at. Now, if you're an individual, those seven groups look a little bit different than if you're married or if you're the head of household. So there's really like 21 different groups that are out there. Now, most people will fall into the middle tax brackets, which include rates of 22%, 24%, and maybe even 32%, and that's based on 2020's rates. 
These tax brackets increase as you earn more money, and they call that a progressive system. So if it sounds complicated, it is. And that's, of course, only on the federal level. States also issue income taxes. Now, there are some states that have no income taxes. Those are Alaska, Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. Some states keep a flat rate for all or almost all income levels. These states are Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Utah. The tax rates in these states range from about 3% to 5.25%. The rest of the states have income tax brackets that progress based on your income in the same way that the federal income taxes do. And these tax rates will vary from 0 to 13.3% across all these other states. In addition to federal and state income taxes, some local municipalities also have income taxes. These are assessed on county or city levels and can be anywhere from 0 to 3.876%, which is in New York City. Other major cities that have income taxes include Denver, Colorado, Washington, D.C., Wilmington, Delaware, Detroit, Michigan, Newark, New Jersey, St. Louis and Kansas City, Missouri, Portland, Oregon, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Believe it or not, 17 states in the U.S. make it possible for local municipalities, even counties, to assess local income taxes, not just these cities and not just the eight states that they represent. Now, most of your paycheck gets robbed, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> I mean taxed by income taxes, but if you've ever stared at your paycheck, you'll know there are some other things they take money away from it for. These are what are called payroll taxes. They include Social Security, which is 12.4%, and Medicare, which is 2.9%, a combined 15.3%. Employers generally pay half of it, while the other half comes directly from your paycheck. But if you're self-employed or you're a contractor, you generally have to pay all of that by yourself. The last type of taxes on what you earn are capital gains taxes. Now, for the sake of taxes, Capital assets are whatever is owned and used for personal purposes, pleasure, or investment. That could be things like homes, cars, jewelry, stocks, and bonds. If any of these types of assets increases in value, that's called a capital gain. However, as you may have guessed, if your home price goes up while you're living in it, that seems pretty ridiculous to try to assess taxes on it. Taxes are assessed whenever those capital gains are realized, meaning if you bought your home at, let's say, $200,000, and two years after you started owning it and living in it, the Zillow price for it jumps up to like $350,000. That's like $150,000 that you could be making on that house, but you're not ready to leave it, so you stay in it, and then you lose your job and you need to sell your house and you're going to go into something smaller, a little more affordable. So you go to sell it and you can only get $250,000 on it. Well, you bought it at $200,000 and you sold it at $250,000. At one point, it was worth $350,000, but you did not realize the $150,000 gain on it that would have been $350,000. You only realized a $50,000 gain, which is what you earned after you sold it. $50,000 above what you bought it for. Now that's a gross simplification of the whole matter, but you get the picture, I hope. In any case, that 50K extra that you made from when you bought the house to when you sold it, that amount is what is taxable in a capital gains tax. And that doesn't mean they take the whole thing. That just means they assess some percentage of it. I don't know, like 30% of that or something. The same thing applies if you buy stock low and you sell it higher. Whatever you earned on that stock once you sold it, that's what's taxable. The last category is what you buy. Now, taxes on what you buy can vary wildly, but it can be summed up in a few very specific ways. Sales tax, excise taxes, gross receipts taxes, and value-added taxes. Now, you're certainly familiar with sales taxes. In the U.S., nothing is priced as it's labeled. 
Everything is the price plus some percentage that is taxed when you go ring everything up at the end. So if you decided to go shopping with a $200 budget, you'd really have to be out there with a $185 budget in mind since that extra $15 would be going to taxes once you ring up that $185 worth of merchandise. Our economy is set up to be all about consumption. So sales taxes account for a strong portion of tax revenue, particularly for state and local governments. According to the Tax Foundation, the U.S. is one of few industrialized countries that still relies on retail sales taxes. Alaska, Delaware, New Hampshire, Montana, and Oregon are the only states that don't collect a retail sales tax. All the others do. In addition to that, 38 states allow local governments to assess their own taxes. The highest state sales tax in the country is in Tennessee at 9.55%. After that, Louisiana at 9.52%, Arkansas at 9.51%, Washington State at 9.23%, and Alabama at 9.21% round out the top five highest states. Interestingly enough, since there are also local sales taxes allowed in these states, the highest overall sales tax in the entire country is in a town called Gould, Arkansas at 11.5%. The next few are where you might expect, or at least where I would expect with my strong red state indoctrination and stereotypes drilled into me from a young age, Chicago, Long Beach, California, and Glendale, California, all at 10.25%. Now, by comparison, L.A., which includes California and the city taxes, has a combined tax rate of 9.5% on retail sales, which is lower than Tennessee, Louisiana, and Arkansas state taxes before any other localities even add their own taxes in. New York City is at 8.875, which is lower than any of those states that I listed, and straight up, it's looking a lot closer to the rates that I grew up used to in Houston, which was at 8.25%. Now, I'm mostly harping on these differences because I was taught to be very biased against blue states, and it's not actually the case. Again, numbers don't lie. I'm not trying to liberalize you, especially if you don't want it, but I am trying to debunk some of these biased myths that I learned growing up, particularly for my own benefit, if not for yours, as well. Retail sales tax rates can impact consumer behavior, so it's important to note a few things on them. First, depending on the state and local governments, the sales tax base, or what is actually taxed, can vary. Tax experts recommend that all retail goods and services for consumers be taxed but not any goods or services that businesses purchase to produce their own goods. Now, in business school La La Land, this is distinguished by two TLAs, which is three-letter acronyms. And I'm actually using numbers, so that doesn't even work. But it's B2C and B2B. B2C stands for Business to Consumer, and B2B stands for Business to Business. Now, I won't get into crazy business world drama for you right now, but just to calm your tits in case you get upset that businesses aren't being taxed here or that they suggest businesses aren't taxed here, they are, and I'm just not going over it. So essentially, businesses are also taxed on earnings, on payroll taxes, on sales transactions. There's also a bit of a double tax thing happening when you pay capital gains taxes because the business also paid its own capital gains, assuming it's publicly traded. So if a business had to pay taxes on the items it purchased to make its own products, then its products would have to be priced higher before they were sold to other businesses or to consumers. In each step, taxes would be compounded, and the end result would be higher prices for the consumer, as well as multiple skimming points for the government. Now, if you think about it, not taxing B2B transactions would help to keep things more affordable for you in the long run. If your anxiety was up, Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense and it can go back down for you. Back to sales taxes, though. There are two main schools of thought on sales taxes, and as with anything else in American politics, most people get scared to make progress in the name of, but we've always done it this way. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, the first train of thought is that sales taxes are essentially elective. 
You can choose whether you want to consume more and therefore you pay the toll to do so. The second school of thought is that these taxes are regressive, meaning they wind up forcing people with lower incomes to pay higher percentages of their paychecks to the government in taxes than people with higher incomes. For example, let's say you wanted to buy a month's worth of chicken breasts, and let's pretend it comes to $5 in sales taxes, roughly. If you made $500 net income each month, that comes out to 1% of your take-home pay. If you made $5,000 a month, that's 0.1% of your income for the exact same purchase. For a person subscribing to the, if you can't afford it, you don't have to buy it frame of thought, they might tell you that all you have to do is not buy the same item. But at some point you have to eat and you have to buy food and even the cheapest food is still going to cost you. Now I'm using food to illustrate the concepts. I know somebody's going to be smart and they're going to come at me, so I'll go ahead and say this. Many states will cherry pick what they include for retail sales taxes, and many of them do not tax groceries. But almost half of them do, so don't really at me on that one. Look, as I mentioned before, tax experts recommend using sales tax for all B2C products and services, but states have not followed that model in many, many cases, and so what you actually get taxed on will vary from state to state. In some states, you'll even vary when you pay taxes on those things. Like tax-free weekend in August in Texas means that you don't have any taxes on retail goods like clothing so that kids can get their back-to-school items a little bit cheaper. Another form of retail sales taxes are excise taxes. Unlike retail sales taxes, these taxes are not based on the sales price of the items that you're purchasing. Their tax is based on the quantity of what you're purchasing. The most notable excise tax in the United States is the tax on gasoline, which is set up on a per-gallon basis. Because gas is such a hot-button topic, I would also like to add here that there are federal, state, and local excise taxes placed on a gallon of gasoline, as well as other taxes like environmental taxes, special taxes, inspection fees, and sometimes, depending on the state, gross receipts taxes. This could come out to the order of an extra dollar per gallon when you look at prices advertised at the pump. The purpose is to effectively put a price on road usage. Remember, the government maintains roads, so if you're contributing to traffic, emissions, and road wear and tear, the government has to do something to offset that usage, like keeping up with the roads, fixing potholes, that kind of thing. So by taxing gasoline, the government has a specific revenue stream to help manage that particular set of tasks, at least theoretically speaking. And I don't want to harp on gasoline. Excise taxes are also issued on a lot of other items. They're set up on very specific items, and they're usually a very volatile or sporadic revenue base for tax income. And in a lot of ways, they're set up to influence citizen behavior through consumer activities. To put it another way, many excise taxes are set up as so-called sin taxes. So they'll tax things like cigarettes, alcohol, gambling, marijuana, where it's legal, and even soda. Now, I checked, and Nevada has not started taxing prostitution, though there was a bill introduced in 2009 to try to do so. They were suggesting a $5 per day tax on services, the businesses and sex workers were in favor of the bill, which was expected to bring in an additional excise tax revenue of $2 million annually, which was based on roughly 400,000 customers each year. Personally, I think not legalizing and taxing prostitution across the country is a major miss for our country, not only in tax revenue, but in providing dignity and quality of life for the women and men who find themselves in a situation where they feel prostitution is their best or only option. I also think that by having a set well-known price for sex acts, we as women would be less inclined to undersell our own value. Hear me out on that. In the same article I read about the tax, I also learned that one of the women would not have typical cishet normative intercourse for less than $1,000. Now, we have these dusty-ass boys complaining about buying our dinners on dates at all um, or even leaving their apartments, like Netflix and chill. Ladies, $1,000.
with no assistance in case of pregnancy and no bodily autonomy these days, that should go even higher. I'm going to say at least double. And that's just for prostitution, right? So that would be for like, I don't know, an hour. Look, you're dating girlfriend, wife material if you choose that path for yourself. So not only is there a pay-to-play fee for a nice romp in the sheets, there's also got to be a level of respect. Men respect what they have to work for, and paying for a service means they have to work to be able to afford that cost to some extent. Straight up, that man should have to spend at least $3,500 worth of time, effort, dates, trips, gifts, etc. to even get one shot in your bed. One shot. And also, you're not a prostitute. He should be trying to ensure that you have fun too. I said what I said. Look, I know I'm single. Take it how you will. But I'm single because I have high standards, because I've seen how bad men are when I don't have high standards, and because I know men only value what they work for. If men knew that there was a national going rate for sex, personally, I feel like they'd be a lot happier to pay layaway for several months in advance, which would be like taking you on dates and stuff. But perhaps and I could be absolutely wrong here, perhaps I'm just underestimating how entitled men feel that they are to sex. Another type of tax on sales is what's known as the gross receipts tax. This is not as widely known around the country, but if you grew up or live in a state that has this, you might not realize just how rare it is in the U.S. these days. Now, these are strictly for companies, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. They tend to be similar to the B2B sales tax concept in that it results in tax pyramiding or passing a compounding tax burden onto the consumer. Now, you'll remember that gross is everything you earned before you take out any of your expenses or liabilities. So gross receipts taxes are taxes on the company's gross sales before it had a chance to remove any business expenditures. Because of that, these types of taxes can be particularly burdensome on startup companies which tend to report losses in their early years. Now, how is it that other countries get away without so much sales tax as the U.S. has to have? It's actually a thing called value-added tax that these countries use instead. So the OECD is short for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a group of 36 countries with advanced economies, and that includes the United States. For the 35 other OECD countries, the value-added tax actually makes up closer to a third of their tax revenue, which far exceeds that of what the U.S. pulls in in sales taxes. In 2018, for example, the U.S. drew in 17.6% of its tax revenue from consumption taxes, while the OECD average was 32.1%. All OECD countries, except for the U.S., as well as another 105 countries worldwide, use VAT to generate tax income. This is part of the reason, if you've ever had the chance to travel to Europe, for example, you'll see a price listed, like say two euros for a cappuccino, and you only actually have to pay two euros, not two euros and 15 cents or whatever cents is for euros. Value-added tax is set up so that as companies go, a tax is assessed on the value that is added in each state of production. The previous stage is deductible, so there isn't a compounding tax burden on consumers. That way, when the product finally gets to consumers, the consumer will end up paying the full VAT, and each stage will have some of that tax applied to their own portion of the value chain. That VAT is already included in the price, though, and it's the business's burden to manage, not the consumer's. Now that you've finished trying to drink from the fire hose on types of taxes out there, there's a few things that you should know and or be able to do with that information. Some taxes are better than others when it comes to promoting economic growth. There's also several things about taxes that you may have heard that aren't necessarily true or helpful. So here's the skinny. Considering the full combination of payroll taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes, property taxes, TPP, and everything else varying across the United States, surely some states are going to be easier and much more affordable to live in than other states, right? 
particularly for middle-class families, based on my research, the answer for that is absolutely. Now, please note, this is for middle-class families, not lower, not upper, not the ultra-riche, not the ultra-poor. So if you don't agree with me on this one, don't at me unless you just want to get my resources. I did not make this shit up. Now, why am I having to put a caveat on this like that? Because my own conservative, state-specific, biased upbringing had me, you guys, screaming when I saw this. Like, I can't even believe my blue eyeballs right now. Check it out. The most tax-friendly states in the United States for middle-class families are Alaska, Arizona, California, Delaware, Florida, Nevada, North Dakota, Tennessee, Washington State, and Wyoming. The least tax-friendly states in the United States for middle-class families are Connecticut, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Maryland, Michigan, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, and Wisconsin. Now, sure, I'd have pegged the East Coast as not the greatest. I'd have pegged some of the red states as the best. But never would I ever have assumed that California and Washington would be among the best places to live for middle-class families as far as tax burdens go, nor the Midwest being the worst. Plus, with all the hype in Texas about how amazing the state is, I'd have expected it to fare far better than middle of the road for middle-class families. All right, well, that's just in the U.S. What about how the U.S. compares to the rest of the world? According to my research, the most harmful types of taxes to a nation's economy are corporate income taxes, gross receipts taxes, and wealth taxes, because these types of taxes tend to stifle economic growth, entrepreneurship, and innovation. The types of taxes that are least harmful to a nation's economy include payroll taxes, consumption taxes, and property taxes on, you know, the immovable or real property. Individual income taxes, excise taxes, and estate taxes fall in the middle, a.k.a. medium amount of harm done to the nation's economy. Here's another fun bias I grew up with. Socialist countries pay like an outrageous amount of personal income taxes. And that's why we here in America don't want to add any socialistic welfare entitlement programs like universal health care. All right. Based on the definitions I gave you earlier, anything regarding entitlement programs, which would be like Social Security and Medicare, is considered payroll taxes or social insurance taxes, not individual income taxes. So let's start with that distinction. In OECD countries, on average, social insurance taxes account for 26.2% of tax revenue, where in the U.S., they account for 25.1%. Now, sure, the average is slightly higher in OECD countries, but not by a statistically significant amount. Let's compare this to income taxes. The average OECD country receives 23.9% of its annual tax revenue from income taxes. In the U.S., that's 40.7%. Remember, the U.S. is the only one with a retail sales tax, another reason why they paradoxically request you buy more in a shitty economy, even though you don't have as much money coming in or are otherwise strapped for cash. 140 other countries have that value-added tax that we talked about earlier. In the U.S., 17.6% of tax revenue is brought in through consumption tax, which I'm going to assume includes excise taxes in that number as well. By comparison, the average OECD country brings in 32.1% of its tax revenue from consumption taxes, a.k.a. the VAT. So the U.S. brings in 58.3% of its tax revenue between its individual income taxes and consumption taxes. The average OECD country brings in 56% of its tax revenue from the same two types of taxes. Ultimately, the VAT makes up for the reduced individual income tax revenue stream, or rather, it makes additional individual income taxes unnecessary. 
Now, that's looking at the big picture. I don't know what each person's paycheck looks like. I don't know their effective overall individual income tax rate in those OECD countries, but they've managed to give a lot more entitlements on a lower income tax revenue. So again, the numbers aren't really telling the same narrative I grew up with, which is more entitlements means higher taxes, always implied to mean higher individual income taxes. So that no one comes at me on this one, again, adding in social insurance taxes, let's get the full picture. The U.S. is getting 83.4% of its tax revenue with income, social insurance, and consumer taxes combined. The average OECD country is getting 82.2% of its tax revenue from the same places. So statistically, not that significant, but still slightly lower. Again, with significantly more social entitlements. The other factors that make up the remaining amounts are property taxes, 12.2% in the U.S., 5.6% in the average OECD country, and corporate taxes, 4.4% in the U.S., 9.5% in the average OECD country. The OECD countries also have about 2.6% of their tax revenue coming in from what the tax foundation calls other taxes. Now, does the U.S. need to look like the rest of the OECD? No, not necessarily. Look, we have more billionaires than any other place in the world, so that's a really good reason to consider a wealth tax when most other places don't. And that may be the other 2.6% of the average OECD country, but don't quote me on that. Considering all the popularized biased arguments against entitlements based on taxes, this provides some insight to suggest that these arguments don't really hold a candle. Now, we also have one of the most complex tax systems in the world. So that might be another argument for tax reform in this country. Just because the tax system we have has been in place our whole lives doesn't mean that it's the best option for our country. But it also doesn't mean that it's not. This is just food for thought. Now, I know that up to this point, we've been looking at the big picture, flying at 35,000 feet, if you will. You've got a good idea of the different types of taxes that exist and how they're used here in the U.S., But what the fuck good will that do you when it comes time for tax season? Not much so far, I'll admit. You've got knowledge, and knowledge is power, but most of that shit so far is just the price to live in this country, and there's about fuck all you can do besides try to move to a different state or country. (laughs) Now let's change that, shall we? And talk about some of the top things that you need to know when it comes to your taxes. In the United States, tax day comes around once per year, but taxes are considered a pay-as-you-go kind of setup. So for those of you poor, unfortunate souls that have been born as late Aries babies, you probably are the most familiar with tax day since it's right around your birthday. And I'm not saying that being a late Aries baby is unfortunate, just that it's so close to tax day. That part is the unfortunate part. April 15th each year is the designated date, but they'll play musical chairs with the date if it falls on a weekend, which usually gives you a couple extra days. It's not normally earlier than the 15th, though. Now, this day is the deadline to file your taxes by, and if you owe money still, the deadline to pay all of those taxes for the previous tax year. Here's a few things that you need to know about paying taxes. Number one. If you earned less than the standard deduction, which is $12,500 for a single person under the age of 65 in 2021, you do not have to file taxes at all. Now, also note, this doesn't apply if you're self-employed because you'll have to file taxes for other reasons. Number two, you may still want to file a tax return, even if you don't have to. With tax credits, you might be able to get money back from the government. A couple key credits of note are the American Opportunity Credit, AOC for short, which GOP supporters might not want to try for since they seem to hate AOC so much. And the Earned Income Tax Credit, EITC, which has a reputation for being only for people with dependent children, but that's actually not the case here. You will get more of a credit for having children, but you don't have to have children to get EITC. Number three, apparently two-thirds of taxpayers don't itemize their deductions. Now, that means listing out all the things you can deduct from your taxable income, which could effectively lower your tax rate and your overall taxes owed. Many of the deductions that you could get require itemization, but some don't. The most popular deductions you can take that don't require itemization include student loan interest, IRA, and moving expenditure deductions. It can also include alimony payments, tuition and fees, and for my teachers out there, 
educator expenses. Number four, the IRS will assess penalty fees if you don't file your taxes and if you don't pay your taxes on time. Even if you cannot pay on time, don't wait to file your taxes. You can set up a payment plan with the IRS if you can't pay it all by tax day, but not filing and not paying is going to set yourself up for some extreme failure. Number five, due dates matter. There's no statute of limitations on the IRS collecting back taxes, so they can come after you at any point. There are due dates for your financial institutions to get your tax forms to you, which is usually mid-February at the latest, and your due date is tax day, both to file and to pay. Number six, an extension to file your taxes is not the same as an extension to pay your taxes. You can file an extension to file your taxes, but that doesn't mean there won't be penalties and interest charged on what you owe them while they wait. You can try to pay some amount before tax day to try to minimize the penalties, but like, why would you pay some arbitrary amount instead of just getting through with all the tax work? I can't think of a good reason to extend the filing of your taxes, but it is an option. Just know that it's probably going to cost you. Number seven, as of midnight on January 1st, there is still one more opportunity for you to reduce your tax bill from the year you just said goodbye to. That way is by contributing to your IRA. Now remember, the IRA has a maximum contribution limit, so you can only reduce your taxable income by up to that limit. And this only works if you're contributing to a traditional IRA, not a Roth IRA. You have until tax day to make that contribution for the previous tax year. Now here's a fun tip. A lot of companies give you bonuses around March each year. So if you are at a company that gives you March bonuses, this is a really good place to get that IRA contribution from in one big chunk. Number eight, if you don't file and pay your taxes, the government can and will go to some pretty big lengths to force your hand, including taking your passport. Number nine, there are both People and tools available to help you do your taxes. You do not have to do them alone. Personally, I like to use TurboTax to do my taxes each year. It's user-friendly. It puts everything into simple terms. It's got a really easy-to-use interface. It's encrypted, and it brings up all the things from the previous year to help make filing each year as simple and as painless as possible. Plus, it connects with Quicken and the Mint app, so everything's all in one spot. Again, not a paid endorsement. I flipping wish. Number 10, you need to have seven years worth of tax data available to you at all times. If you work at a company that has what they call a document retention program, that's what this is. This is your personal document retention program. Even though there's no statute of limitations for the IRS to collect back taxes, they have a statute of limitations on auditing you you get audited, they could go as far back as seven years in your tax history. So when you get all that paper mail with all the funny numbers and letters like 1099-INT, for example, just go get a manila folder or a prettier one if you like. I'm obsessed with office supplies. Label it taxes-whatever year it is and put all those papers in there. It doesn't have to be any more organized than that. On tax day this year, April of 2022, you could have officially thrown out documents from tax year 2015. If you file with TurboTax, your previous tax forms should all be included in the software, but it's not a bad idea to either print or save a PDF of your filed forms for your records as well. Again, if you still have 2015 records, you can toss them by now, but you need to hang on to 2016 to 2022 records until you reassess again in April of 2023. If you are young and you haven't filed taxes for a while and you're like, I don't have seven years worth of records, you just need to get whatever you do have until you build up seven years worth of records. But you don't have to keep 10 years worth. You only have to keep seven. Now, as with everything else in our government that is altogether overly complicated, there are a lot of myths and misnomers floating around about taxes. I'm going to debunk a very tiny few of those right now. Number one is that rich people don't pay income taxes. If you believe this, it's not true. I don't know. The top 1% of earners pay over a third of U.S. income taxes, and the top half of earners pay over 97%. 
The second myth that's floating around out there that I actually hadn't heard until I was doing this research is that taxes are lower today than they were in the 1950s on really rich people. Now, let's remember that ultra-rich discussion from earlier that would affect like 75,000 households. So in the 1950s, there was a tax that affected the ultra-rich, but it was on the top earning 10,000 households. So like the top less than 0.01% of earners. That was a top tax bracket tier, and it was assessed on anybody who earned more than $200,000 each year. And so in that bracket, once you had over $200,000, you had a 91% income tax rate on everything that you made over $200,000. So $201,000 a year, you would only get to keep nine cents of that extra dollar. But everything below that was assessed in the lower tax brackets. So the effective tax rate at that time was still somewhere between 20 to 25%. There's also ample evidence that reported earnings will go down when tax rates spike that high. So that sort of progressive tax rate system wasn't exactly effective, and it didn't have the same impact as the rumors might have you believe that they did. The third myth that's floating out there is that income taxes aren't actually in United States law. Okay, they are. Sorry, it's uh, the 16th Amendment. But, you know, if you're super into these rogue SCOTUS judges, maybe while they're overturning case law based on, you know, really strongly held precedents because of amendments, maybe they'll overturn this one too. But I wouldn't hold my breath for that one. So, sorry. The last and final myth that I'm going to come in and debunk for you is about tax refunds, and that is that getting a refund is super exciting and they're basically the fucking jam. I really hate to burst your bubble here, but not really. And that is you should actually be trying very, 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 very hard to not get a tax refund at all. Here's why. You are getting paid back for giving the government too many of your dollars in taxes over the course of the year. That's what a tax refund is. You paid too much and they're refunding you the money that you overpaid. So because you're giving them all of that money over the course of the year and you're not holding on to it, they're not giving you a penny over what you overpaid. So you're giving them an interest-free loan throughout the year. An interest-free loan means that you are actually losing money, particularly if inflation is so high, like right now. In 2018, for example, the IRS paid back $390 billion to some 120 million taxpayers. Let's say they earned a flat 1% interest rate on that money, which is super fucking low, by the way. They would have generated $4 billion in interest revenue alone just because 120 million people overpaid their taxes. So for the record, that's about $3,500 overpaid per person each year. So sure, 1% of that would only be about 35 bucks. What if you got 10% of that by putting it in the stock market instead? That would be an extra $350 that you left on the table because the U.S. government and the IRS held on to that money instead of you. Now, how do you fix that? Alter your W-4 with your company so that you don't get a refund. Your W-4 is that thing that you had to fill out at the beginning, and most companies should have a way for you to go back and look at it. That would be something like your adjustments or deductions or something like that. They don't make it easy, but your best bet is to try to get it to where you owe something on the order of $50 to $100 at the end of the year or in taxes because that means you did not overpay them at all and you owe very little. So it's like a game. So you figure out how to adjust your W-4 so that you're not paying too much money and you don't owe them too much either. You gotta play Goldilocks with your W-4. You want it to get it just right. The last thing I want you girls to take home with you is how taxes affect behavior. I found some particularly fun anecdotes of real things people have done across the globe and across history to minimize or avoid their taxes. In the 18th and 19th centuries, windows were considered luxuries for people 
in places like France, England, Ireland, and Scotland. So when those countries placed taxes on windows, building owners actually went and laid bricks over them to avoid taxes. If you've ever been to Amsterdam, you may have noticed how narrow many of the buildings are. This was not due to a unique architectural style, but instead due to a 16th century tax that was based off the width of the building's facade. If you're familiar with mansard-style roofs in Paris, this is the one that the entire floor seems to be roof instead of sidewall. That was an implication of taxes which were levied on the number of floors of a building below the roof line. A more recent tax avoidance measure was taken in Greece, where pools were taxed as luxury items. Pool owners purchased green pool covers and even dyed their pool water green to try to camouflage their pools on satellite imaging so they didn't have to pay that luxury tax. Most of us would consider a Twix bar a candy bar. However, because there is flour used as an ingredient in the cookie, which is a fairly arbitrary ingredient that recategorizes Twix bars from candy to food product, it isn't taxed wherever groceries are exempted from retail sales tax in the United States. In the UK, adult clothing items are subject to the VAT. But if you are a thin little person and you can squeeze into children's clothing, you can avoid paying that VAT because children's clothing are not included in that tax. Due to the high excise tax on cigarettes in New York State, it's estimated that over 280 million packs are smuggled into the state annually, as opposed to encouraging New Yorkers to quit smoking. Hard seltzers like White Claws have taken off in part due to tax regulations. Instead of distilling sugars, hard seltzer manufacturers have found ways to ferment the sugars. Distillation is how hard liquor is made, while fermentation is how beer is made. Since these hard seltzers are manufactured the same way beer is, they're taxed like beer, too. This avoids a hefty distilled spirits excise tax here in the United States. Channeling summer 2018-2019 vibes, I can say with confidence that there are no liquor laws when you're drinking claws. One of the reasons there are so many bikes in Denmark is the incredibly high excise tax placed on new vehicle purchases, 150%. That means that a car that costs 30K to purchase in the U.S. would cost $75,000 in Denmark. Now that is one way to keep cars out of Copenhagen. Another vehicular example are electric cars here in the United States. People aren't just amazingly environmental these days, although that is on the rise. Part of the electric car craze successes are due to tax subsidies that make electric vehicles more economical to own than they would be otherwise, and in some cases, than their unleaded and diesel-powered counterparts are. Now, why is any of that important? Because at the end of the day, we're all looking at our own individual bottom line. If there are taxes in place that discourage a behavior that we want to maintain, we're going to look for ways around that tax. If capital gains taxes are high, for example, we're probably going to liquidate our stock less often than if those taxes were low. Capital gains taxes have a direct impact on investor behavior, and investor behavior has a direct impact on the markets and the economy. Taxes can incentivize or discourage actions by consumers, and the full implication can be incredibly powerful. All right, well, that's the 411 on taxes. The road could go on forever and the party would never end, but I don't know anyone who would want to go down that road, so that's where we'll lock it up for today. Next episode, we're going to dive into some typical company benefits. There's a lot of not as tangible as base salary compensation that companies will offer you, and if you don't know what they are and how to compare them, you might not make the most informed decision when you go to accept a job offer. This could cause you to pick a job that actually pays lower than you thought even if the base salary is higher. Maybe you're not one among us who participated in the great resignation, but at some point you are likely to consider a new job offer in the future. I'll be celebrating my birthday next Sunday. Shout out to my fellow cancer babies, but I'll be meeting you girls back here in Leo season, ready to wrap things up. Just three more episodes to go. Can you believe it? I hope you girls have a wonderful few weeks and may your mimosas and bank accounts always be bottomless. 
Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, brought to you by Camex LLC. Any questions, comments, concerns, or requests for consultation should be directed to our email at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host and do not represent the opinions of Camex LLC. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and Camex LLC remind you to please drink responsibly. Thank you.